Well, good morning, Wallenstein. It is, wow, receptive. It is so good to be here with all of you again. I like to say every time I visit, it's kind of like sleeping over at Grandma's. It just feels so familiar and warm. Is it working? Should I refer? Oh, it's working. Everything is working. I, I don't know if you're like me, can't believe we're just two weeks from Christmas. I see a bunch of you last minute guys like, huh, yeah, <laughs> present. Can I tell you a little story I discovered recently as I prepared for Christmas? My dad really wants a laser level. And so I went down the rabbit hole of like, how are lasers even a thing? Like, what is it? How come some of them can cut through steel and other ones just shine that nice Dewalt green line? And so I found out some things. In January of 2015, shortly after Christmas, a Christian man who was a scientist named Charles Taves died just a couple months before his 100th birthday. Taves had won the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1964 for inventing two things. First, the maser, which is an electromagnetic device that emits microwaves, and then also the laser, like lasers. Obituaries following his death hailed Taves for his ingenuity, for his Christian faith, and for his inventions that had advanced humanity, especially the laser. There's just one problem Charles Taves did not invent the laser. Two years before Taves published his discovery of lasers, another scientist named Gordon Gould had one of those revelations that could change the course of human history. He was working off of ideas that had been laid down by Taves when he was building his maser, but it was Gould who realized that it was theoretically possible to create a beam of light that could cut through steel. And so he christened his discovery the laser and then he immediately sought out Taves for some advice. Bad move. When Gould asked for his help, Taves publicly encouraged his work, but privately he began to take out patents on the concepts while deliberately misleading Gould about how to receive credit for his work. Now Gould didn't uncover this deception until 1959, by which time Taves already had the patents and was making a killing selling lasers around the world. A 30-year legal battle would follow as Gould desperately fought for recognition for his work. And it wasn't until 1988 that courts actually finally granted Gould ownership of his breakthrough, by which time Taves had already won the Nobel Prize for it. And so Taves ended up with the glory that may well have been due to Gould. In the history of lasers, Taves appears to be the critical character. But it could be that Gould is actually the center of the story. Sometimes it's not immediately clear to us hearing the story who the true center is. And this morning we're going to be looking at one of the crucial characters in the Christmas story. This person had to be there for the story to occur, and they play an essential role in God's introduction to earth as a human being. And although this character had to be a part of this critical event in human history, 
we actually know very little about them. They're not that important. We don't know much of their story. Apart from the birth narratives in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, this person is barely even mentioned. And yet, every December, we hear their name an awful lot. We probably even think about them a little bit. We see their likeness and cutouts on lawns. And so this morning, we're going to look at the life and faith of Joseph. As we begin, would you join with me in a word of prayer? Lord God, we thank you for Sunday mornings. Thank you for the Lord's Day, this opportunity for us to gather corporately and worship you. Lord, we re- we've remembered you already here today, and this morning we submit ourselves to your word. Lord God, we ask that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit and through your word this morning, um, that we would leave here changed and that we would know you a little better. We thank you for Christmas time and the reminder that It was your divine will to become human, to empathize with our condition and meet with us. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. If you just began reading through the New Testament, starting in the Gospel of Matthew, you would think that Joseph is going to be a main character. Matthew 1 begins with Christ's genealogy as traced through Joseph, and it reads like this. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And then we want to skip a few father ofs. And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who's called the Christ. And so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And so we meet Joseph right away in Matthew. We find out that he's in the royal line of King David and is to whom Jesus is born. And notice how careful the author is with Joseph's title. He goes through this whole list. This guy's the father of this guy, who's the father of this guy, who's the father of this guy. The father of Joseph, who's the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus Christ was born. Interesting, right? Because Joseph is Jesus' father, but he's also not his father. What's conceived in Mary is not Joseph's son. It's God the Father's son, but Joseph is going to be his earthly dad. In Luke 3, we read that Jesus was supposed to be, or was thought to be, Joseph's son, which just further emphasizes this complicated relationship. But all of the great prophecies about Christ, that we read about Christ coming from the line of David, or being the lion from the tribe of Judah, all of those things only come as counting Jesus as Joseph's legal son. It's through Joseph that all of those things are true about Jesus. And so he's the father of God, but he's not God the father. And then we read on in Matthew 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph and before they came together, 
She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Again, if you've just started in Matthew, you'd think that Joseph is going to be a main character and part of the whole rest of the story. But actually, this is basically the largest section of Scripture that talks about Joseph, where we find out what kind of man he is, what's he like, and how does he interact with his world. And so although it's short, let's just unpack this text a little bit to find out what's going on. So we read that Mary and Joseph are betrothed. Your translation might read engaged. Uh, But don't think about modern North American engagement. Um, Betrothal at this time period among the Jews was a legally binding contract that was terminable only by either death, in which case the woman would become a widow by law, or by the same divorce process as in a completed marriage. So it's very significant. Upon betrothal, the man was actually already referred to as the husband, which you see Joseph called in verse 19. Now this betrothal period usually lasted around a year and concluded when the husband would come and get his bride and bring her back to his home where they would then consummate the marriage. And in this time period among the Jews, the man was often a few years older than his wife. So Mary would have very likely been in her mid-teens when all of this took place, putting Joseph in his late teens, possibly early 20s. Now notice in verse 18 that the reader is reminded repeatedly that Mary and Joseph have not yet joined together. So she is a virgin, and this author is stressing that. The other gospel writers who talk about the birth of Christ also stress this. But then we see that she was found to be with child. What's that mean? Well, it means people noticed she was pregnant. Now, if we line this up with the birth narrative in the gospel of Luke we'll see that once Mary's met by an angel and told of God's plan for her and becomes pregnant by the Holy Spirit, she then goes and visits her cousin Elizabeth in another town for three months. So by the time she comes back from that visit, she's showing. She's got the bump. She's got the immaculate bump. So you can picture this scene quite well, right? You've got Joseph who we find out in Luke's gospel that he's from Nazareth. That's a small little backwater town in a rural county in Israel. The best guess for that community in that time period would be around four or 500 people. Now Mary's very likely either from the exact same town or from a neighboring little village. That's not a lot of people. It's probably that amount of people in this building here this morning. So people know people, right? Everybody knows what's going on here. She comes home from a lengthy visit to her cousin, visibly pregnant, and Joseph's probably starting to put a few things together. Like, wait a minute, this looks an awful lot. Like you found out you were pregnant, then you ditched town for a couple months to sort things out, and now you're back. Or maybe he thinks that 
some other guy took advantage of her. Now, he probably knows every single guy in town. So he's looking around like, which one are you? Now, we know from elsewhere in Scripture that Joseph is a builder. The word for builder is tecton. That could mean a bunch of different trades, but most likely it's a woodworker. Now, early Christian tradition claimed that Jesus, for work, made yokes and plows out of wood. That would make perfect sense. Nazareth is an agricultural community, and so Jesus, learning from Joseph, Joseph probably made farming equipment and worked on houses and sheds and barns. In this time period, this is not a prestigious job, but it's certainly an important one in village life. Now, we hear about Joseph a little later in the Gospels. In Matthew 13, the townspeople in Nazareth are complaining about Jesus during his public ministry. And they say, isn't this Joseph the carpenter's son? So Joseph isn't just the carpenter. He's also known to his community. It makes sense too, small town. He's likely one of the few fix-it guys. He would have been called on when things broke. But in these two verses in Matthew 1, we also learn a little something about Joseph's character. We read that he was a just man and that he was unwilling to put Mary to shame. Now the word just means law-abiding. So Joseph is a righteous man. Now, he could have obeyed the law and gone about this very differently. The law said that the punishment for adultery, which this appears to be, is stoning to death. Now, by this time, much more common among the Jews was public divorce. That would involve a very public court case that would have essentially made Mary untouchable as a promiscuous woman. But not only was Joseph just, but he also acts in a loving way towards Mary. He resolves to divorce her quietly. This both obeys the law and protects Mary. By doing this quietly, it would mean that you just need two witnesses, probably the parents, and then it's all done. Now, maybe Joseph really deeply loved Mary, like romantically. He really cared for her and wanted to treat her well. Or maybe he didn't know her all that well yet, but he's just a kind man. Either way, we learn that Joseph is an honorable man of character. And we got to remember this. Joseph knows for sure that he's not the father, right? Now, because there's been no public spectacle, he's probably also assuming that Mary has not been taken advantage of. And so he must assume that she has cheated on him. And all of the emotions that go on with that, and yet, he intends to not put her to shame. That is a man of deep character. And then, God meets with Joseph. We read on. But as Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And so God meets with Joseph. He sends a messenger to tell Joseph some fairly important details about his life. He gets told, firstly, Mary is not lying to him. She is indeed pregnant by the Holy Spirit, and the child in her will save people from their sins. It's the Messiah. And then he gets, he gets three directives from God. Do not fear. Take Mary as your wife. Name the child Jesus. And look at Joseph. He wakes up and does what God has commanded. Now, that's not just the easiest thing in the world to do. Like, think about what that means. That means he woke up and got together all of his family and his friends for a wedding. Right? They would have been like, mm, really, Joseph? You told us you're not the dad. Are you sure you still want this girl? And Joseph would have been, yes. And then his whole family and friends would have started the party, walked over to her family's house where they would all be, and then very publicly walked all the way back to his family house where there would then be a multiple-day celebration. This is the highlight of town life. It's the party of the year. It's a very public thing. Joseph would have been exposed to all kinds of fear here because he's also exposed to all kinds of potential shame. There's only two apparent conclusions to a shotgun wedding. Either Joseph is marrying a woman who's already been unfaithful to him or Joseph has also broken the law and slept with a woman who is not yet his wife. Now by taking this woman as his wife, it certainly makes the second seem more likely in the eyes of his friends and neighbors, right? So now he looks like a lawbreaker instead of the truth, which is that he's an obedient man who is faithful to the law and who is kind to people. So his reputation would have at least been questioned by having this wedding with his woman showing. And I think we might be quick to forget, I know I am, that... Joseph is just like the most normal guy. He's just a normal guy. He's not special. He's just some 19-year-old tradesman from a little backwater town who just wants to build stuff and live a simple, honorable life. He just wants to get married and settle down and die in the same place he was born. He wants to obey God's law and live right with his neighbors. He's just like heaps of us here this morning. He's not expecting to meet an angel. He's not expecting to have his wife become pregnant by anyone other than himself. He's not expecting to have to parent God. He would have felt all of those same things that you feel in times of uncertainty. He would have asked all of those same fundamental questions of life. He's not special in the sense of being like 
some unique super person who can totally handle whatever gets thrown at him without getting anxious or stressed or rattled. He's normal. It hurts when people call him names. It's nerve-wracking, wondering, did I just dream that angel? Or was that really, really God? Like, he would have had his mind racing as he went about his day building. Am I really doing the right thing? Did God really, really say, what do my parents think about all of this? I want to be liked and respected. What if I'm not enough for this woman and child? All of that. (laughs) And yet, Joseph woke up and did as the Lord commanded. This is an example for all Christians for all time. This is what's asked of us each day of our lives. Wake up and do as the Lord has commanded, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the hurricane of feelings that conflict in our hearts, regardless of what people think or will say about us. Get up and obey God. There was an old man who attended this church for a long time who's no longer with us, and he used to say it like this. Just do the next right thing. Joseph just does the next right thing. He takes Mary as his wife. And then notice that he controls his desires and does not sleep with her until after Jesus is born. And you can picture everything that goes on then, right? He hears news of a census, and so he takes his family south to Bethlehem, likely the city he was born in. And he's there for the star, for the shepherds, for the wise men, for the prophecies in the temple when they dedicate Christ. Joseph wakes up each day and does as the Lord has commanded. And so as the father, he has the privilege of naming this boy. He names him Jesus, just like God said to do. As the father, he circumcises this boy on the eighth day, just like God said to do. He presents his son with an offering in the temple, just like God said to do. He does these things even when it's difficult. I think that's true. He did a 150-kilometer journey on foot with a nine-month pregnant woman. That's miserable. (laughs) Then no room in the inn once they arrive? This is his first child. He delivers a baby in a barn. He does not drag his feet when obeying God. And this is basically the whole pattern of Joseph that we see in Scripture. It's remarkable. In Matthew 2, we read this. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, second time, and said, Rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Then a little while later, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph, third time, in Egypt, saying, rise and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And Joseph rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. 
But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, fourth time, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. He went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. Joseph just wakes up and does what the Lord has commanded. Whether or not he thinks it makes sense, whether or not it is personally challenging, whether or not he wants to, he submits to the will of God. And in Luke's account of the birth of Jesus, we actually get to read some of the things that Joseph was feeling. We read that when Simeon prophesied in the temple, when they have Jesus dedicated, Simeon prophesies over this baby that he would be the savior of the world. We read that Joseph marveled at it. He marveled at it. He gets affirmed that he's not crazy. He's not hearing voices. He's indeed been asked by God to raise the Messiah. And actually, the last we hear of Joseph in the Bible, it's the same thing. He does what God commands. He obeys the law and he takes his family annually to Jerusalem as the law commands. And Jesus ends up staying behind in the temple. And so his parents lose 12-year-old Jesus for a few days. Imagine that. Like Joseph's running around the city praying. Lord, I'm so sorry, but I have misplaced your son. (laughs) And my son. (laughs) Help me find him. And when they finally do find Jesus, he's teaching in the temple at age 12, teaching adults. We read what Joseph was feeling. It says he was astonished. He's astonished. He's reminded again, this prepubescent boy is the son of God. And he's seen it before, right? This kid that he has been teaching how to use hand tools, how to build stuff, how to walk and talk and play ball. That's God. Now, Joseph has certainly been learning from Jesus at home too. But when his his parents find him in the temple, Mary scolds Jesus, saying how much distress this has caused his parents. And Jesus responded by saying he must be in his father's house. And then we read something interesting. We read that Joseph didn't understand. He didn't get it. At least not all of the way. And that kind of clears up the mystery for us. We maybe assume that sometimes the biblical characters had way more of the picture and so it was just easy for them to obey. Joseph did not understand all of the way. Now all parents know that their kids teach them stuff, right? Joseph's kid created him. What a tough an amazing privilege that would have been. And after that temple scenario, we read that Jesus went home with his mom and dad and was submissive to them. Now we can remember that Jesus is also the one who said children should obey their parents in the Lord, knowing full well he was going to be a child someday. Wow. And then Luke 2 ends by saying that Jesus grew up in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with men. Essentially that he grew up well. And in that culture, that means he grew up like his dad. 
Now, I have just been blown away this year considering Joseph. I'm a relatively new dad. Number two comes in a couple of weeks. (laughs) And I cannot believe that God has tasked me with raising these children. It is absolutely impossible. Like, you need God to do it. And right now, it's just this little girl. It's not God incarnate. Joseph had to raise God. It's mind-boggling. He changed his bum. He worked on words with him. He held his hand as he learned to walk. He brought him to church every Saturday. He patiently taught him how to work with his hands. He carried him around on his shoulders. He did all of this knowing that this is the Savior. This is the promised Messiah. Man, I feel totally inadequate raising Lonnie. Joseph had to raise Jesus Christ. It's crazy. He's just a normal guy. Joseph's probably around 30-ish years old when they find Jesus in the temple. That's the last time that Joseph is mentioned alive in Scripture. Scholars universally agree that Joseph was dead by the time Jesus started his public ministry. And I sort of wonder if when we read that Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, if that acquaintedness began when he mourned the death of his dad. And so although Joseph seems like he's going to be a character that matters in the story of the Bible, he really isn't. He's, he's not in here that much. <laughs> he's certainly not the center of the story. And even the parts of Scripture that he is in, he's not the leading role anyways. All of the stories he's in are actually about Jesus Christ. What a fantastic example for us. So let me ask you this morning, who is the center of your story? Who's your story about? Who's the main character? We're just so, so tempted to make this life about ourselves, aren't we? We want the speaking lines. We want center stage. We want the bright lights on us. We want to be recognized and remembered and respected, maybe even revered. Maybe we paint things a little more Christian. We want to be used by God. We want to do God's will. But we're only willing to do those things on our own timeline. Or as long as it's not too uncomfortable or not too restrictive or as long as we still come off as more or less socially acceptable or normal to our friends and coworkers and neighbors. That can't just be me, right? But we have such an example in Joseph. Although he is the father of God, he knows that he is not God the Father. Did you get that? Regardless of the amount of responsibility that God has entrusted to him, he does not start acting like he's God. He knows that the posture of the disciple is obedience. He knows that the call of the Christian is submission. And it seems like Joseph knows something else that I'm quick to forget. Joseph doesn't ignore God's word 
for temporary comfort. Are we guilty of that? Some of God's truth can be pretty inconvenient for our lives in 2022 here in Canada. It can make us seem like the bad guy or a little bit backwards or not tolerant enough or even bigoted. It can be a lot easier to compromise or maybe just bend the truth subtly or maybe just give in a little bit on just this one thing than to trust God at his word. Sometimes we keep our mouths shut when we should say something. Sometimes we say something when we should keep our mouths shut. (laughs) Sometimes we read a plain command in scripture and we secretly wonder, did God really say? We want temporary comfort, right? We want easy in the moment. We don't want to be shamed by the people around us or be open to the potential of having our reputation smeared. Joseph doesn't ignore God's word for temporary comfort. Joseph obeys God's word for eternal glory. He knows the good he ought to do, and he does it. He knows the word he heard from God, and he wakes up, and he goes. And remember, Joseph is peripheral. Like, he's not the man. He's just some guy. He doesn't act like he's the center of his own story. He's certainly not Charles Taves skimming credit for the laser, trying to steal the glory to make himself the center of the story. He acts like Jesus Christ is the center of his story. And so who is the center of your story? And maybe some of us are like, honestly, I don't even really know. I want God to be, but I have no idea how to measure my motives and see. I was struck reading the life of Joseph, just how simple it is to recognize a mature disciple of Christ. It's simple. Joseph woke up and did as the Lord commanded. That's how you give God the glory. That's how you make him the center of the story. I want that to be said about me. Chris wakes up and does as the Lord has commanded. Don't you long for that? Don't don't follow your own notions of what's right and wrong in this life. You got a three-pound brain. You don't really know anything. (laughs) So wake up and follow God's commands. He is infinitely right. He doesn't just know what is good. He is good. And young people, I, I want to talk to you for a minute, okay? So look up here at me. You are not too young to do good and follow God. You're not too young. God wants to use you. Think about this. God's infinitely wise eternal plan was to have teenagers raise his son. They're normal people. You're just a normal person. That's fine. God wants your life to matter eternally. He has good plans for you. He has good works 
prepared in advance for you to do. He has told his church not to look down on you just because you are young. You can do this. You can get up in the morning and obey God. You don't have to wait till you get older or until you have a family or until you're done school or until you're doing some job you like. You can start right now. Well, what if it's hard, Chris? Wake up and do as the Lord has commanded. Well, what if people hate me? Wake up and do as the Lord has commanded. Well, what if it's not what I think? Wake up and do as the Lord has commanded. Well, what if it costs me something? Wake up and do as the Lord has commanded. Well, what if it costs me my life? Guess what? It will. Christmas time sort of gives us all that slap in the face reminder that Jesus is the reason. He's everything. And being all for him will cost you everything. The Apostle Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I love that verse. That's the essence of Christianity. That is what it means to have a real relationship with Jesus. And so I hope today that Joseph inspires you towards Jesus Christ. He had a real relationship with Jesus. He was his dad. And what a miracle it is to think that someday, you and I who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ will be standing shoulder to shoulder with Joseph in heaven. We'll be standing there praising God and Joseph will be looking up at his stepson and his savior. He had a real relationship with Christ. He made his whole life about Jesus Christ's glory. And you and I will be standing there if we put our faith in Jesus and we'll each have our own relationship with him. And come that day, the center of all stories will be Jesus Christ. Is he the center of your story right now? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just give you so much glory for your good plan for salvation. Lord, we're reminded uh, this time of year that it is not what people would have thought. That you would send a baby to be the great and strong redeemer. God, that could only be you. We just give you glory that your son, Jesus Christ, was born of the Virgin Mary that he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with men, that he lived a perfect life, that he would die a sacrificial death on our behalf, and that he would be raised again to life on the third day. Lord, we place our faith in him, and it is in Jesus that we trust. Thank you for your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Thank you, Chris, for a fresh look at Joseph and his life. There's one thing that really stuck out to me, and is this. 
Joseph doesn't drag his feet. I'd like you to put your name in there. Whatever your name is, do you drag your feet? And these are the things that came to my mind as an elder. Are you here this morning and dragging your feet to confess your need of Christ to be your Savior? Are you here this morning dragging your feet to be obedient in baptism? Are you here this morning dragging your feet to get up and pray? Are you here this morning dragging your feet to take time to get into God's Word and be strengthening your faith? Are you here this morning dragging your feet to say sorry to a friend? Sorry to a parent? Sorry to your wife? Sorry to your husband? Or even sorry to your children? Are you dragging your feet to share the most amazing name that we know? Jesus. Jesus. There's just something wonderful about that name. The anointed one who came to save us from our sins. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we thank you for the privilege to be in a country where we have the freedom to come and gather in a congregation of this size. So many different lives are represented here this morning. Some who are living in anxiety and fear. Some who have purpose to do nothing. Some who are very engaged and volunteer and serving here at Wallenstein and serving in the community, sharing their faith. But help us, Father all of us, no matter where we're at this morning, to not be able to leave this place without a serious conscience of thinking, where am I dragging my feet? When will I get up and be obedient to what you want us to do, no matter what? Help us, Father, to be an obedient people so that your name would be glorified and that we could be like Joseph and be amazed at what you're doing, to be awestruck. Help us, Father, for the glory of Jesus Christ, for your great name, and for the eternal purposes that the church is here to make Christ known in the whole world. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen. Don't drag your feet. Thank you. Have a great day.